If you brought a Bible, open it up with me. If you didn't, take out the one in front of you. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We're going to read that um, verse through verse 5, and then we're going to read chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 as well. And if you don't own a Bible, take the one out in front of you and take it home. Every single one of the Bibles here is a gift through the Dwayne Arnold Bible Fund in memory of Dwayne, um, who received his own Bible here when he was just a little guy. He actually took mine as we share. And in his memory, um, every Bible that we have here is a gift um, to you through those who have made a contribution to that fund. So take out your Bible um, and join me. Second Samuel, our reading is going to begin in chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Our reading continues in 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. David again brought together all the able-bodied men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I feel like after reading that part, we should invite the worship team back up, right? Um, I hope you find that what we do as we sing uh, is just a little bit more significant after we're going to learn here why it's so important for us to sing. But before that, I want to show you just a very loose representation of a segment of what we just read, specifically the Ark of the Covenant, as Hollywood might show it to us. Let's watch. Any Indiana Jones fans? Raiders of the Lost Ark? Now, that clip may be the most biblically accurate part of the movie. That's not saying a whole lot, just so you know. Don't go back and watch it and go, that's all in the Bible. It's not, most of it isn't at all. But 
that does capture for us at least the essence of this holy vessel in, in, in quite, quite a good way, actually, uh, that served as the seat of God's presence and was placed at the center of God's people. And I share that to say that recognizing God's presence at the center is going to end up proving to be the single greatest accomplishment of this young King David that we are going to learn about here today. We're entering a new chapter in our journey through the Bible. If you're just joining us here, we're taking this entire year to move through the Bible. And if you opened up your Bible, you found that we're actually making some serious progress at this point. God's people, Israel, have been set apart by God. They've been rescued by God. They've been led by God through the wilderness and into a new land and a new season as a new nation. And last week we left off in the story of Ruth. Now Ruth takes place during the time of the judges and what's important to know about that time and that season is that God was not only the center of their worship. We we assume God is the center of worship when we walk into the church, right? There's the cross at the center representing the presence of God, all of that. God was more than that for Israel. He was the center of everything they did as a nation. They literally saw God as their king. And his presence with them was made apparent through what is known as the Ark of God or the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, as time would go on, in the time between last week and this week especially, they lost their focus. At one point, they even lost the Ark to their enemies. And now, we're left at the time of the judge, from the time of the judges where, where God was calling them back to himself to a time known as the time of the kings. And that time essentially began with all of Israel looking around at the other kingdoms around them, the other nations who had human kings, human rulers, and saying, I want one of those. Not unlike if you've got multiple kids and one of the kids has something and you don't, they said, we want one too. And it's easy to pick apart that desire, right? We can get real spiritual as we're sitting in church on Sunday and say, if God is your king, why would you want a human being to be your king? And yet I want to remind us that we do this all the time. Anytime you trust anything or anyone above God, you're doing this too. And if you don't believe me, we're entering into a year where the only thing you're going to see on every device that you open up and every piece of mail that you take out of your mailbox is something related to a political campaign. Can we moan? Let me just save you the trouble. They're all trying to do the same thing. They're speaking into this innate human condition, this desire that we have to be led and rescued by someone else. And while human leadership is not in and of itself inherently sinful or evil, forgetting that God is still the one that ultimately is in control of what leads us and guides us and is at the center of everything we do, when we forget that, that's what leads us into trouble. That's what led Israel into trouble, and that's what brings us to the story today of King David. 
Young David was not the first king of Israel. He's the second king. The first one was Saul. Saul is David's father-in-law to his first wife. His first wife is Saul's daughter, Michael. And that's important detail for you to remember in just a minute. One of his first official acts as king is to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. What he does is he recenters God's presence in the middle of God's people. And the first thing they do do is they worship. They worship. They sing. They dance. They play instruments. And and the new king David is at the center of all of it. And he is leading this worship in a very, let me use the translator's language, undignified way. If you look in your Bible, just a few verses after what we just read, this is what happens next. Verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, remember this is his wife, was watching from a window. Anybody who's married, have you ever been embarrassed watching your spouse do something and you're just going like this? Just picture that's what's happening right now. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Now, if you keep reading, you'll see that David comes home, walks in the door, puts the keys on the table, and they have a conversation about this. And this is what she says to him in verse 20. She says, How the king of Israel, that's David, has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls and his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Now, he wasn't completely naked, let me just say, but he took off his king's clothing. He dressed in an undignified way. Another way I would describe this to be is David was unashamed. And the scene that came to my mind as I was reading this was was the summer when I worked at a boat marina on the Fox Chain in Illinois. Has anybody here ever worked at a boat marina? Show of hands. Okay, if a couple of you have, you probably know, because I'm pretty sure this guy exists in every boat marina. Ours was one with all these slips and all these yachts and all the owners that would use it as like their summer home, right? You could stay in them overnight. And some of the retired guys, they lived there the whole summer. They were just they were just there living the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle. And like I think any other marina, you guys who raise your hands, you can tell me if I'm wrong. There were a few people there, and they were pretty much always men, (laughs) who spent the entire summer wearing nothing more than a Speedo. And if you don't know what a Speedo is, thankfully I have a... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Did I not just scare you, right? (laughs) Like, oh my goodness, this is live streamed too? Like, oh... (laughs) If you don't know what a Speedo is, let me, let me just give you a two-word definition. Not enough. <laughs> That's it. It's all you need to know. It's not enough. Not enough material. Not enough dignity. But you know what? These guys at this marina that I worked at, and probably the ones you guys worked at too, they never cared. Their clothing reflected their utter lack of shame. They brought their whole selves... Everywhere they went, if they wanted to go buy a bag of ice, that's what they did. If they were filling up their boat with gas, that's what they wore all summer long. That's what they did. And I couldn't help but think, that's David. 
That's David in 2 Samuel 6. And he's not out on his yacht. He's dancing before the Lord. And that's what he tells his wife. He says this in verse 22. He says, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. And at this early point in David's reign, he has no idea how true that statement he just made is going to become. He will indeed become even more undignified before God. And it's not going to be because he takes off more of his clothes. It's going to be because he's going to stand before God in everything. All of his successes, building up Israel and Jerusalem and this great military might and all of those kinds of things. But he's also going to stand before God in all of his failures, his pride, his deception, his murder, his adultery, all real things that he will be guilty of before his life on this side of eternity is over. Before David dies, everything about him is going to be exposed. Which in that way is just like you and me. See, that's us too. God sees everything, doesn't he? And yet David is remembered generations later as a man, and I quote, a man after God's own heart. And it is not because David was perfect, far from it. The reason why is because David invited God back to the center of this imperfect kingdom and his own imperfect heart as an imperfect king. It's the same thing generations later. The Apostle Paul felt the freedom to do in Christ when he remembers what God said to him when he asked for one of his own weaknesses to be taken away. God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so what does Paul say? He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Here's the truth. The more exposed we are before God, the more God's grace can be exposed to us. Let me say that again. It might be the most important line that you're going to hear come out of my mouth except for the words of Scripture themselves. The more exposed we are to God, the more God's grace can be exposed to us, to heal us, to forgive us, to give us strength, and so how do we do that? How do we be like David and invite God into the center of our personal imperfections, of our brokenness, of our lives, of our kingdoms? What do we do? We worship, unashamed, even undignified. And the way that David did this and the way he taught us to do this is found in the songbook of the Bible, the book of Psalms. David danced and later David wrote songs because David knew that music has a unique way of exposing our hearts and our desires and the depths of our souls in a way that nothing else can. If you don't believe me, how many of you, I want you to raise your hands, how many of you have ever been driving in the car or listening to music on the radio at home and you, you felt a certain way, you were in a certain mood and a specific song came on and suddenly everything changed. You felt different, you were drawn someplace else. How many of you have ever experienced that? We all have, right? Because music is a powerful thing. It's amazing, just a few notes 
of a familiar song has the power to, to take you back to a place or a time or a feeling. And, and I saw this was universal uh, a number of years ago. We were doing a whole series on the Psalms here at St. John's. And I went on Facebook and I asked um, my Facebook friends to, to share the answer to the question, what song takes you back to a past memory? Or gives you hope when you're down. And there were over 100 people that responded in just a few hours because it was such a universal question. Uh, a couple of those I'll share with you from back then. Donna Corson, who's a member of our church, um, she said the song Twilight Time. Uh, some of our older members, you may know what that song is. It reminds her of a time when she and her now husband Chuck were dating back in 1958. And she was living in the dorms of the nursing school that she was going to. He would come by and pick her up. She hears that song, and it brings her back to that particular moment. Um, Judy Baldack, another member of our church, she said the song, You've Got a Friend. Do you know that song? I want to sing it, but I don't sing. <laughs> and I'll ruin it for you. You know that song. She said that brings her back to a time that was really difficult for her, and it reminds her of that time. Uh, Kathy Sutton, uh, who's a member of our church, she said the song, How Great Thou Art. It encouraged her at the time when she was battling Cancer. I know a lot of people for that song, it brings you back to a funeral when you had to say goodbye to someone. I, for me, I, I, I'm a little less spiritual. I think of the songs like, um, like Sandman by Metallica. Any Metallica fans? That, that was like the first song. My son is, is a freshman, and so he's, he's going to be doing school dances and things like that for the first time. And for me, like that was the first school dance with the strobe lights and the fog machines and the jumping up and down and all that stuff. Or my parents, they, they grew up listening to songs in the 60s and the 70s. And so you know when I hear CCR, Van Morrison, or the Beach Boys, any of that stuff, it takes me back to being in the car and, and driving into Chicago to go visit family. We always listen to oldies 104.3 in Illinois. Um, residents remember that. It was just on repeat all the time. All of those songs brings me back. Music does that. It draws us into ourselves. It draws us into our emotions. It reflects the times and the challenges that we face. It has the ability to draw us into the past, but it also has the ability to give us hope for the future. And so David uses music to do all of those things, to center us on God's presence in the center of all of those places. And friends, I want you to know that so that you know that that's why we sing in church. To come before God like David did. Thankfully, it's not about what we wear, but it's about bearing our souls before the God who already knows everything about us. And one of the songs that David wrote is actually the last song in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 150. And it serves as kind of a template to show us what is the way to rightfully place God at the center of our worship. And I want to show it to you just in the first six verses. It all begins in verse 1. Read that part with me. Praise the Lord. That's it. Praise the Lord. Now, that word praise, that's going to show up at the end of every single one of the sentences of this psalm. And it's made up of two Hebrew words that we translate alleluia. Say that with me. Alleluia. That is two words that mean praise ye Yah. Yahweh meaning God. It is to praise 
the Lord. I think of hallelujah. Have you ever, you ever said that maybe? Maybe it just comes out something. You have this epiphany moment and you go hallelujah, right? I think of it like maybe like a toddler or a child that has no words to describe or, or, or express their excitement and their joy. And, you know, so for them, they just make a sound. They're like, gah, it sounds like cuter than mine. But, but for us, we have this word, hallelujah. It's, it's like language to David's dancing. And, and so it comes over and over again. And the next few verses are going to teach us where can we praise, why can we praise, how can we praise, and who has the opportunity to come before God and praise. And so the first question is where, and that comes at the second part of this verse. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary praise him in his mighty heavens now sanctuary essentially means what we think it means the temple it's the place it's where you are Um, but what about those of you at home joining us online do you get to worship too yes because of psalm 150 verse 1 it says praise him in his mighty heavens this is not heaven like where you're gonna go when you die heavens is the sky is there anywhere you can go that is not under the heavens is there anywhere you can go that is not under the sky you can worship everywhere the second question is why do we worship and that's answered in verse two we praise him for his acts of power we praise him for his surpassing greatness. This is the single biggest difference between any other music or singing that we do and praising the Lord. Because the truth is, I mean, man, as some years ago, just top of my head, because a couple of you here at church uh, who were around then, we went together, we went and saw Zach Brown Band um, out at Pammy's back there. She was there for that, out at Alpine Valley. Has anybody ever been out to Alpine Valley for a good concert, right? Like most of what we're reading right here, you can see it out there. When the Grateful Dead come, or, or whoever it might be, undignified dancing and, and singing and all this kind of stuff. The difference between all of those songs and all of that music and the music that we use to worship and to praise God is that all that other music, it's all about you. It's all about us. It's about ourselves and our feelings and our emotions. There's nothing maybe inherently wrong with that. But when we worship and praise, it's about God. It's about his power. It's about his greatness. And that's important because when you sing, if you're one of those Lutherans, right? I know a lot of you didn't come from the Lutheran tradition. If you do, um, you, you'll know when you walk in that everybody fights over the back pew, right? <laughs> everybody fights over the back pew. And sometimes you look around and you're like, oh, why, is, why isn't anybody singing, right? right? This might be your thing. Here's why you need to sing. Sing louder and with more passion at the second half of this service than you did at the beginning because singing praises to God does something in you because God is doing something in you when you do it. When you sing praises to God in the midst of a constantly changing world and in the midst of our own constantly changing hearts, what the music does is it provides a conduit to see that God is never changing. Did anybody look at the news this week and need to be reminded that God is never changing? Did you look into your own heart 
and say, I need to know that God is never changing. (laughs) My heart can change when a different song plays on the radio. But God never changes. And so when we worship God, it is to allow him to pour into us, to bind us to him and him to us, not just in the present, but the future that he has for us all in him and him in us. That is the why. And so the next two questions are how and when should we praise the Lord? And that's verses 3 through 5. We praise him with the sound of the trumpet. We praise him with the harp and the lyre. We praise him with the tambourine and the dancing. We praise him with the strings and the pipe. We praise him with the clash of cymbals. We praise him with resounding cymbals. What do you see here? It is a full range of musical instruments that are used to praise God. And that tells us something. Not only can you use all of the different instruments, but every one of those instruments was used in a specific time and a specific circumstance that for us who are centering God can remind us that we can worship in those situations too. For example, you look at the first one. It says, praise him with the sounding of the what? trumpet. That would have been the shofar. That's the ram's horn. Here's what they would have used in their cultural moment. It would have been used to to celebrate a national or sacred occasion. Maybe the beginning of the year of Jubilee. David is telling us by writing those words that we should praise God at the center of when big things happen. I think the closest thing I can think of is the 4th of July. when When the fireworks are going off and we've got the parade and all of those kinds of things, that is a moment when we have the invitation to be reminded that God is at the center of it all. Then you have the tambourine and the dancing, the second verse there, which tells us that we praise God in celebrations. Because that's what you use a tambourine for. That's what you dance for. Whether it's a wedding reception or uh, a celebration, a birthday party, a football game. You can worship God in the midst of all of those things. The strings and the pipe, they're simple instruments. They're things that they could have been carried with them. They could be taken anywhere. And it reminds us that we can praise God everywhere, all of the time. And then, of course, the crashing cymbals. (laughs) That's the best part, right? Loud and magnificent, just like the bell that has been crashing at the beginning of every worship service in this place, outside this church, for 125 years. What this list of instruments tells us is that the organ is no more or less holy than the guitar or the piano or the voice that we use to sing. They are all holy instruments that worship inside this room is not inherently more worthy of of God or us or any of that than the worship that we bring outside this room in other places. And that brings us to the last question that's answered in Psalm 150, verse 6, and that is, who gets to praise the name of the Lord? And it says here, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And so let's just do a real simple test. On the count of three, I want you to take a deep breath in. One, two, three. Breathe out. Did you breathe? You pass the test. Praise the Lord. Everything that has breath, praise 
the Lord. With every instrument, during the best of times and the worst of times, praise the Lord. Why? Because praise is not about us. It's about inviting God back to the center of our lives. As our circumstances change, it reminds us that God always stays the same. And I want to end you with a story I've shared. It's been a number of years now. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. It's, it's the story behind a very well-known hymn that I'm sure you have heard. It's called, It Is Well With My Soul. It Is Well With My Soul. It's written by a Christian man. His name is Horatio Spafford. Spafford was a wealthy businessman and lawyer in the 1800s. He lived in Chicago. And he was married with four daughters and one son. And as part of their family's story, they, they tragically lost their young son. He got sick. And then shortly after that, in the great Chicago fire, they lost almost all, if not all, of their real estate investments. They all burned to the ground. And so in 1873, Spafford decided, I think we need a vacation. <laughs> and I would agree. And so he arranged an opportunity for a trip to be taken for his family to go to Europe. And he sent his wife and their four daughters ahead of him. And he would follow on the next ship. But before he was able to even leave town, he got word that the ship that his family was on was involved in a collision at sea. And his wife sent a telegram back to her husband that said this, Saved alone. What shall I do? I've told this story many times. So this is the first time I found the pictures of those four little girls. Spafford lost everything. He's a modern day Joe. And so what does he do? What do you do? He gets on a boat to bring his wife back with him. And when his ship arrives at the place in the ocean where his daughters tragically passed away, he sat down and he wrote a song. And that song is the hymn, It Is Well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. He worshipped. Because in the moment of his deepest despair, exposed before God, his broken soul, he worshipped the God who does not change, even though everything in his life had changed. He worshipped because he knew that while he is powerless to change these indescribably tragic circumstances, the God that he praises sent his son Jesus to conquer sin and its greatest consequence, which is death itself, so that while he still, for the rest of his life, would have to bear the unbearable weight of mourning and loss, as the Apostle Paul will write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we as Christians do not mourn as those who have no hope. But instead, we mourn as those whose hope is in a God who gave himself that we might have eternal hope in him. And he expresses those sentiments in these words of the hymn, my sin, oh the bliss of the glorious thought 
My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's why David danced. Because he knew that God was not finished with him or with Israel. It is why Paul could rejoice in his weaknesses because he knew that God wasn't finished with him. It's why Spafford could rejoice and even write a hymn in the loss of all of his children because he knew that death being the worst thing in Christ is never the last thing. Amen? And it is not the last thing for you as well. And we connect ourselves to that hope that comes from God every time we sing. And that is why in all things and in all circumstances, we follow the way of David and praise the Lord. Amen. Why do we worship? We worship because God is King. He is exalted over the nations. His glory is higher than the heavens. He is robed in majesty. And he is armed with strength. Who is like our God? He is glorious in holiness. He is awesome in splendor. And he performs great wonders. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. But not only is God king, he is also kind. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And he is abounding in faithful love. And he has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us for our evil. He has purchased our freedom in Christ, and he has forgiven our sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness in Christ, let us draw near. Let us worship.